following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. So boys and girls, there's some things that you like to do, and some things that you don't like to do. But sometimes you do the things you don't really like because of what I refer to as motivation. What's the motivation? Well, if your mom just says, I want you to go clean your room, or I want you to have this math assignment done in the next hour, and you don't really want to do it, uh, you, to use the word my wife uses, but you dawdled. You dawdled, which means you just dilly-dallied. You just wasted time. Your mind wandered all away, and, and you weren't very intense on getting that task done. But let's say she sweetened it up a bit. And she said, if you will get your room clean in the next hour, then you can go outside to play. You can go build that fort you've been wanting to build. If you get that math assignment done in the next hour, then you can... Uh, Read the book that you want to read, or you can go play with your dollhouse. Well, suddenly now, that which you didn't really care about doing got more interesting, didn't it? Because of motivation, because of an award that your mother promised you if you would do what she said for you to do. And we all know that in life, motivations are very important. Uh, we can make ourselves do things that we don't really care to do by thinking about uh, uh, the consequence or uh, the results or the recompense. And then we can go about a task with more energy and concentration. Now, this is certainly true with respect to gospel preaching today. I think one of the reasons that gospel preaching today is across the board fairly poor is because of a lack of proper biblical motivations. And in the last part of the prologue of Elihu's speech, he addresses two very important gospel motivations, particularly as they will apply to preachers. But I hope that you'll see how they apply to actually all of us. So as I mentioned two weeks ago, this Prologue is a defense. It's uh, the practice of ethos. Um, Elihu is seeking to win a hearing, a hearing with these elderly men, the wise men who have spoken, a hearing with Job, a hearing with the crowd that we've learned from the context of Job has been gathered around and following pretty carefully the argument uh, that has been going back and forth. He first, as we read again tonight, saw that he sought to efface himself. He, he wanted to respect the elderly, that wisdom is found with the elderly, and he listened very carefully. But the problem was uh, a lack of wisdom. The men had condemned Job and uh, called upon God to rout him, but they had not one answer for any of the arguments that he offered. And on the other hand, uh, Job himself who, as Calvin said, had a good case that he poorly argued, uh, did not uh, present his case very well. And, and, doing, and vindicated himself with a righteous indignation, 
he in fact um, impugned the honor of God. And so Elihu has said, I need to speak now. Uh, I too have the Spirit of God. So he brings that to a conclusion in the text tonight, verses 15 uh, through 22, where he gives us now these two gospel motivations. The man of God must be convinced that he speaks God's message for God's approval. That's really the message here. The man of God must be convinced that he speaks God's message for God's approval. So there's two motivations that ministers and would-be ministers should have. One is a conviction of the truth of his message, and the other a conviction of the presence of God. In verses 15 through 20, Elihu speaks of this first conviction, a conviction of the truth of his message. In verses 15 and 16, he contrasts himself with the three spokesmen who have been condemning Job. It's almost like a, a, a soliloquy. I believe that these are his words, but he's almost speaking now you know, to himself, looking at them, they're dismayed. Uh, the word means they're broken in spirit. Their, their logic has failed them. They no longer answer. Words have failed them literally moved away from them. Now, they had said that they sat down and were quiet because Job was self-righteous. But Elihu's cut to the case, you see. He says, no, words that fail them because they do not have any conviction about what they are saying. They have a bad case, and they can no longer pursue it. And so he asks himself the question rhetorically, shall I wait? He has waited. Shall I wait? Because they do not speak. And perhaps here once again, he implied this earlier, that he waited after Job finished to see if they were going to say something else. They didn't. He waits again, it seems. Uh, shall I wait? Looks around. They do not speak. Because they stand. They stop. They're staggered in their way, and they no longer have an answer. So that's the, that's the situation. He's been quiet, he's been respectful, and they have nothing now to add to the development of the case. And so he contrasts himself in verses 17 through 20. He first says in 17, if you look there, I too will answer my share. He said, he's waited, now it's my portion. I'm going to tell you my portion. I'm going to tell my opinion. Now, we came across this word opinion back in verse 6, um, where he says, I'm young in years and you were old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. It's the same word, what I think. Um, he uses it once again for uh, this knowledge that he has. And he's actually, he's not saying, I'm just giving you my ideas. He's already pointed out that he was speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he's doing it now in a humble way. Uh, much of the strategy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, for example, uh, in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that he says in verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, 
But if my brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, Paul's not saying there he's not inspired, but he's saying, now, this is not something I'm bringing to you with the authority of the Savior. No, this is something that I'm bringing to you by my own inspiration. And, and later on in the chapter, he repeats uh, that same thought, that he um, is giving his opinion, but um, that doesn't mean that it's not true. So when he says, I'm going to give you, tell you what I think, give my opinion, he's speaking humbly. But you'll see here, he's speaking out of a divine compulsion. He has received a message from the Lord, and he could say, woe am I if I do not deliver this message from the Lord. He describes himself literally in verse 18, I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. And this idea in my belly, I'm full of words within me, is within his inner parts. Now, this spirit can be the Holy Spirit at work in him, or it can be his spirit on which the Holy Spirit is at work. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. He has a divine compulsion. He has received these words. Remember now, I pointed out two weeks ago, he's God's prophet. And the mark now that he is God's prophet is that he has this divine compulsion to speak to Job and the three men and those who are around the message of the Lord. He then describes that compulsion uh, with a figure in verse 19. Behold, pay attention now. This is important. My belly, remember these words are within him, is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It's about to burst. Remember the figure the Lord gave about putting new wine in old wineskins, and the old wineskins couldn't stretch, and they would break. But even when new wine was placed in new wineskins, the wine is going to ferment. And as it ferments, it expands. And thus, um, it has to have a vent to let the pressure out. And he said, if I don't vent my conscience, if I don't vent myself of the words that God has given to me, I'm going to burst like a wineskin. And this is how he is, is communicating the compulsion that he has here to deliver this message now. And so he says, let me speak in verse 20. Let me speak that I may get relief. You realize he sat there as God's spokesman. He's been silent for this entire process of listening to the counselors repeat themselves, the same-o, same-o. Job effectively answering to him, growing in his grasp of truth, and yet at the same time, along the way, slandering God. And because of his youth, because of respect for those men, he's been silent, and he's about to blow up. He says, give me relief. I must speak. Let me open my lips and answer. And that word and answer, uh, some of you might remember that's actually when the, uh, in these speeches, for example, look at 26.1, then Job responded, he's responded and said, or he answered and said. And so he's now taking his time to give his answer. So, 
he is speaking now under a conviction that he has the word of God. You follow that. That's the first step. He received this message from God. He now has a divine compulsion because of a conviction that it's God's message. He has this compulsion to speak. This compulsion marked God's prophets throughout the centuries. Jeremiah, who because of difficulties at times had determined not to speak, says of his compulsion, my soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. He determined to be silent because God's word burned in him. He could not be silent. Because God's word was in him like new wine in a wineskin. He could not be silent. He was constrained, constrained to speak. The Lord's apostles testified this before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We are the witnesses of the Christ. We are the witnesses of the resurrection. We cannot be quiet. We're under divine compulsion. Of course, as we meditated there in Isaiah 61, the Savior himself came with this divine compulsion. Why? Because the Spirit of God was upon him. He had to preach the good news of the gospel. He had to usher in the kingdom of God. And he did so in his prophetic office as well as in his priestly and kingly office. So in Mark's gospel, when he had such a success in Capernaum, and he'd gone off to pray and Peter comes and says, man, we've got to go back into town. Everybody's gathered at the house to hear you. And Jesus responds, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Our Savior came under divine compulsion. He preached with the conviction that his, he who was the word of God uttered the word of God and he must do so. He had been anointed by the Spirit of God. Now that is what Elihu is expressing here. And it is a most important conviction. I think it is one of the reasons today that preaching is uh, often uh, cowardly and indirect and insipid is because fire does not burn in the belly. Fire needs to burn in the belly. The wine must be vented for true, faithful gospel preachers. We need men, those of you who are ordained, those of you who will seek, seek to be ordained, we need to go into the pulpit with this sense that woe am I if I cannot deliver this message. But now how do you get that message? You're not going to get it by finishing your preparation the day before told you all that. The preparation must be finished. So then you can put the wine, so to speak, in the wineskin. It's got to ferment. It's got to grow. It's got to burn. You've got to be consumed by it. So you are being delivered of a message that the Spirit of Christ has given you. So seek from God this uh, compulsion that the message, in fact, is part of who you are. And you must. And you must say as well with the Apostle Paul, whether I get paid or not, i got to preach. One way to discern a gospel call. Now, a man must be approved, and he needs that external call. But what am I if I don't preach? May that be your compulsion and your passion. 
because of a conviction that God has given you his truth. And thus, coupled with that, you must always believe to be true that which you are saying. And never go into the pulpit unconvinced about the truth, about what you're going. Keep your mouth shut if you're not convinced about the truth, about what you're going to say. And moreover, you're two-thirds through your preparation. You realize, this passage doesn't say what I thought it said. My worst experience was I was, it was on a Lord's Day afternoon. I was a priest that night at Trinity, the church we started in California. I'm sitting in a funeral service on that Lord's Day afternoon, and I'm meditating, and suddenly it, it, it occurs to me, I have completely missed the text. It's wrong. Now what am I going to do? It's the middle of the afternoon, I'm at a funeral. Well, by God's grace, I didn't preach what I prepared to preach. I had to go back, the time that I had, and preach what I was convinced was the truth of God. It's only when you've convinced it's the truth of God that you're going to be under compulsion to deliver. And so that first gospel motivation must be a conviction of the truth of your message, the truth of God's word. Now, the second is that you must also be uh, convinced, convicted, motivated by the fact of the presence of God. Convicted of the presence of God in what you are about to do. Now, Elihu lays this out in verses 21 and 22. He first just shows us his resolve in 21. Let me now be partial to no one nor flatter any man. Um, the let me now is, is a bit uh, tame. This is a strong asservation. For I now must not, and it's actually um, lift up the face of a man. And the word he uses there for man is of a, an important man, a noble man. To lift up the face of a noble man was to show partiality to him because of his nobility, because of his place in the culture. And of course, those three men before whom he now stood, or those four, counting Job, were the eminent men of their day. But he said, oh, let me not, let me not show partiality to any of them in what I have to say. Nor let me flatter any man. And there he uses the, the common word, Adam, the man of the dirt, because men are but creatures, and God is the great majestic creator. And I must not flatter the low because he's low. I must not flatter the high because he's high. I must not seek to appease them because who they are, whether their place in society is great or whether they're poor and downtrodden, I must never hide the word. I must speak it regardless of the hearer. That was Joseph, wasn't it, when he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the wine, uh, the bread, the baker. I'm sure he was very happy to give the first message, <laughs> but then he had to give the second. Or when he stood before Nebuchadnezzar, and he'd rather not tell him, you know, what God was just prophesying concerning him. But it was God's word. Even Joseph, Joseph gets bad press. I think Joseph was proper to tell his brothers because Joseph had received revelation from God for them, for the family. And he was simply not acting arrogantly, at least in my opinion he wasn't, he was acting Faithfully, he had a word. And just as it Amos who says that the, the, the lion roars shall not people fear, 
You know, when Jehovah God speaks, we must speak as well. So he said that he, he would not tone down his message, he would not change his message in, in any way whatsoever, regardless of the person who's before him. And then he gives the reason in verse 22. He says, I do not know how to flatter. And it's a very intense expression in the Hebrew. It's, I, I do not know I, I shall flatter. And it's just a way of saying, I do not know how to flatter. But it's very intense. This is, again, a very strong, um, almost self-curse on him that uh, he, he could not do this. But why? This is the very last line of the text. My maker would soon take me away. Here he is aware that he is called to this prophetic office by the triune God who made him and redeemed him. And he's going to give an answer to God for how he, what he did with the message that God had given to him. He said, I might soon be taken away. I have my office taken away. I have my life taken away. Whatever it is, he spoke now in the fear of God, knowing that if he in any way watered down the message, um, in any way changed the message or its focus, he was going to answer to the sovereign, holy God. And that was his great conviction, that he would speak in the presence of God. Paul tells Timothy and us in 2 Timothy 4 as he calls on us to preach, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word with the awareness that you have an audience of a triune God and you're going to give an answer to him for the stewardship that you have exercised Paul wrote the Corinthians, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. It's been a very powerful passage in my own life. He picks up from Jeremiah who said the same thing. But as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you. He's talking to God. I didn't hurry away being a shepherd after you, nor have I longed for that woeful day. You yourself know that the utterance of my lips was in your presence. That is very sobering, you see. When a man stands in the pulpit, when you stand to teach in a Sunday school class, when we lead our families, we pursue the callings that God has given to us. Every one of us does those things in the presence of God. Every one of us will give an answer to God for the stewardship that has been entrusted to us. And particularly, the gospel minister in 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle delves more deeply into this judgment of God. According to the grace of God, which was given me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with our fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, 
he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Each man who labors for God as a minister and a preacher is going to give an answer to God for the building materials that he used. And above all, we then must exercise the entirety of our ministry aware that we are in the presence of God. It's a wonderful motivation in two ways. Uh, we often will enter the pulpit fearful, not so much in a place like this, but uh, there will be churches where you'll know there'll be people opposed to you or to what you're going to say. You know there'll be those who think that uh, your doctrine is too strong or Calvinistic or because of certain sins you've been warned not to address in the congregation and there sets the person who runs the show. And you're afraid. But you don't need to fear man. There's one and one alone whom we should fear in the pulpit. And that's the one who sent us there. We fear him. And on the other hand, there's always the desire for applause and for approbation and to preach for that or to preach for other wrong, uh, carnal or covetous motivations. The great antidote to that is to be mindful. I'm preaching in the presence of a triune God to whom I'm going to give an answer for all that I have to say. So it's these two convictions that I believe uh, enables a man of God to press on in his ministry. The conviction that he deals with the word of God thus under compulsion. The conviction that he exercises his ministry in the presence of God. They're powerful motives for the preacher and they're powerful instruments of persuasion. So, two weeks ago we talked about the ethos of persuasion. That's what Elihu was doing. It's a good thing that we can learn from him, that he, he sought to build bridges with his audience any way he could truthfully. And you see the Apostle Paul uh, doing that. Of course, I mentioned two weeks ago the, the main ethos that we have with our people is godliness. If they know that we are seeking godliness, then we've already won their hearts. But here, he practices what, I, what is called the pathos of persuasion. Now there is an eloquence, there is a fire in what he has to say because of these two convictions. He must speak, and that's evident then in how he handles himself. His own emotions are moved by what he has to say. And it's when my emotions are moved or Pastor Groff's emotions are moved that your emotions will be moved. If that message does not come from us the inside out, you'll not be moved by it. Oh, you profit from it mentally and even spiritually, but you will not be moved. It's our compulsion that compels. And then if you know that we are men who are conscious of exercising a ministry before the Holy God, that also brings further persuasiveness with it. Let me give four things here to ministers, but although you'll see some of them apply as well to others of us in the congregation, and then particularly address you as hearers. Uh, the first thing is, as you enter into the ministry, I speak now to you young men, you must have this conviction that God has called you. You see, Elihu had that, didn't he? 
You must have this conviction that God has called you. Now, this is going to enable you to suffer sometimes a good many hardships as you go to seminary. It's going to cause your wife to suffer hardships. She needs to share that conviction with you. It's why it's, it's very important when we talk to men. You know, is your wife on board with this? Because she, too, uh, will suffer much uh, because of this call. And so the two of you, as a team, uh, must together have this conviction. But then... For you, it is then, you go through a process. You, you come, this is why we have these, pro so the men just came under care. You see, that's a strengthening of their conviction. It's not simply of them. No, a quarter of the church has said, we, we see things in you. We think this is of God. Man's licensed. And there the quarter of the church says further, yes, we, we see these things in you. We see your gifts, your ability to communicate the truth of God and just discern truth. But then... It's by ordination. And what I want you men to understand is that in ordination, as Elihu was set aside in a direct way, as Timothy was, I think we talked about Timothy last week, but in that act of ordination, Christ, the King of the church, now sets you aside to ministry. And you're going to have those days when you're going to wonder, am I really in the right place? Am I really, am I an utter failure? And that's when the Spirit will encourage you that the Lord Christ sets you aside. He is the one who puts you in office. But I'd like to speak to all of you young mothers because you too must have a conviction. You've got a calling with hundreds of dirty diapers and messes and children tugging on you here and there, and then trying to homeschool and adjust to your husband's schedule. You know what you must have. You must have a conviction that this is a calling from God. And that for a woman, there is no greater calling. He doesn't give it to every woman. He doesn't give the calling to preach to every man. But and to be a mother in Israel, to rear children for the Lord. And if God's not put you in that place, and you come alongside those mothers, and you help them in their calling. But this conviction of calling is so very important. And as you young people think about vocation, you want to seek God's will. You want to go into whatever it is you enter into with a conviction this is God's calling. And there's the way we were talking this morning. And the brother thought maybe it was wrong for him to farm because he loved it so much. But you see, that's what God does. God has designed us, planned us from eternity, designed us in the womb, gave us all of our interests and abilities. And I want you to love what you do. If you don't, then you're not in your calling. Okay? You maybe have to be there for a while, but um, you need to, as you can, get into that calling. But now's the time, young people, to be thinking through that with your parents, never on your own. What gifts do they see in you? What interest? to help channel those directions now so that as you mature, you will have a conviction about your vocation. So uh, the conviction of calling is the first thing that we learn here from Elihu. A second thing that we learn that as you then men are in your studies, uh, preparing your sermons, you need to uh, be doing so 
aware that you are in the presence of God, seeking God's mind then for you and for the congregation in your preparation. So every week we talk about illumination. We pray for it here as we enter into our public task, but we're to pray for it in the study, seeking to know the mind of God in that text of Scripture for you, God's people. Those three things must cohere. The mind of God in that text, understand it, and then understand it for your people. And so we pray as we study. We pray as we prepare a sermon. Now this is a place where all of you, dear friends, enter into that task. As we've said before, you're to be praying for your ministers as we pray daily in your private prayers and in family prayer. That God indeed will give us the message that he wants for you, his people. And that then he will give us the unction when we come into the pulpit. And that's the third thing then. We must realize then that we do all of our work in the presence of God. Whether it's in the study or in the pulpit, we want to work in the presence of God. And again, that applies to all of us though, doesn't it? Yes, I preach in the presence of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. But whatever your calling is, you need to be doing that in dependence upon the Spirit of Christ and be doing it, as we reminded this morning in Sunday School, for God's glory. For that is the calling of all of us. And then fourth, the minister must go into the pulpit in absolute dependence upon Christ for what he has to say. This is why we strongly encourage you men not to have manuscripts, but to prepare well and prayerfully, as I've already said, but then to come in dependence upon Christ to, to speak his word to his people. And it does become the living word of Christ as we do so. But this also then has further application for all of you who hear. And that we talked about in the Sunday school class a week ago. In larger catechism, 160 is required of those who hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. So you have a work to do as well. If you're convinced that we work with a compulsion of the conviction of divine truth, and that we're trying to do our work in the presence of God, then you are to come and sit humbly <coughs> Under the preaching, after having prepared yourself, you have a work to do as well. Yes, examine what you hear by Scripture. That you should never hear anything from this. Doesn't mean you agree with the interpretation of the text. But there's nothing that's been said in that sermon that's not biblical. But if it is biblical, then you are to receive it with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God. That's your response, prayerfully to wait on the word and then know that it's the Lord Christ by his spirit who's speaking with a living voice in the preaching of his word. And it places a solemn obligation on all of us as we sit under preaching. Even I as I sit under Pastor Groff and he as he sits under me. We all have this 
for a solemn obligation. Above all, you want to hear the voice of the Lord Christ, don't you? And that means you want to heed his commandments. You want to repent when he says repent. You want to take encouragement when he gives you encouragement. Now, I just want to repeat one word tonight from the Lord Christ. And that is, building on to this morning, you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you will be saved. Those are not our words. Those are the words of the Bible, but they're the words of the living Christ who speaks to us through its reading, but particularly through its preaching. And every time you hear that gospel appeal, it is the voice of Christ who is speaking to you. He's not just inviting. He is commanding. And he's warning. He wants you. He wants all of you young people. That's why he placed you within his covenant household. He wants you from the tenderest age to hear him. Take hold of him by faith. and Give him all glory and honor. Let us pray. Standing as we pray. We bless you, holy God, for this revelation you've given us through Elihu, your prophet. These great gospel motives that all of us who will or do preach should have. The conviction that we have divine truth from your word and that we preach in your presence. That this would sober us every day and cause us to work with all the more diligence, prayer, and care, Lord in what we do. Grant, Lord, that no man would ever be in this pulpit who would equivocate or compromise your truth, though not saying everything that always needs to be, should be said, but what needs to be said, to do so with humility and winsomeness, as well as boldness and force. Give all of us, Lord, that attitude in our work of a conviction of a calling and that we will do it before you. Help your people, Lord, to listen well to the preaching of your word, which you've appointed as the primary means of grace. And so, Lord, pray in these things. We now give ourselves to do them by your grace. We take hold of this message, and as we bring you now our offering, we are saying yes, Lord, to what you have revealed to us. We dedicate ourselves to you as we dedicate this offering. For Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.